Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Since forming in 1996, Linkin Park has sold over 100 million records worldwide. Their enormous success mixing genres like hip-hop, metal, and anthemic pop was spearheaded by the band's ultra-talented founder, Mike Shinoda. Two months after Linkin Park released their seventh album in 2017, their charismatic frontman Chester Bennington died by suicide, sending the band and millions of fans into a tailspin. The following year, Mike Shinoda detailed his grief on his solo release, Post Traumatic. And since that time, Mike has continued his relentless dedication to making music. All through quarantine, for instance, Mike has been creating tracks from scratch live on Twitch five days a week. He's amassed a community of thousands of followers who scour the internet for new artists for Mike to collaborate with, using the hashtag ShinodaProduceMe. In this episode, Rick Rubin talks to Mike about the albums he produced with Linkin Park that helped redefine the band's sound. Mike also reminisces about the band's early interpersonal dynamics and how the Beastie Boys' license to ill helped lay the foundation for Mike's life work. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Mike Shinoda. Tell me about what you're doing on Twitch. It's so weird, man. It's great. I love it. When quarantine first start, started, every day was the same day. I was in pajamas half the time. I was just like walking around in sweats. Like, I wasn't depressed, but it was just like, everything is the same. So when I, I, I started streaming effectively because it created like structure. So I stream, I started then and I still do stream five days a week. I stream weekdays, 10 to 
you know, noon or one-ish. And that was a nice, like, it was a nice way to be like, oh, I've got like, you know, I've got my weekdays now and I'm not streaming today. I know it's Saturday. Like, it's just a stupid thing. And I got to use, really dig in with this space and get creative and, and get weird, which is part of the most fun part of it is doing stuff. You go, oh, I didn't even know. That was a weird idea. That was fun to do. And all last year I was getting, I was, it was getting faster and faster and faster in terms of like making a track. And then I realized at the end of last year, like, how do I do, now that I've done this for a while, I'm starting to get a little bit burnt on it. Like I want to do something different with it. And I I decided early on, I wouldn't do vocals because I think that would burn me out. So I was just making instrumentals. And then I realized I could, since I'm live on Twitch and there's anywhere between, I don't know, like a thousand. And I think we peaked at like almost 30,000 people watching at one time. I wanted to do something to like enhance the channel and give back to the people that have been watching. So I started taking like fan submissions of vocalists and songs. Cause I just realized like looking at Instagram and looking at TikTok, like there's so many good artists out there who have no following. They've got like, you know, 600 people following them and they're actually very good. And so I just started taking submissions from those people that I let, I called, you know, and I mean, you'll get this joke right away. I started calling the chat, the A&R me. So it's like, it's like, you know, 900 people whose job it is to go find me the best stuff. And they do, they go, they go and find the good stuff and they bring it to me. And they're like, you know, uh, the more they say, the more they shout, like, look at this one, look at this one. I know it's like pretty good. So cool. Yeah. And so I've been, I've, I do two to three starting like a couple of weeks ago. I've been able to do two to three brand new songs. All like I'm in, in a morning, I'm probably like a stream and a half. I get a song done from scratch to like finished. And I send them something that's effectively like mixed and mastered. It's incredible. That they can release. <laughs> it's so fun, man. It's really, really fun. And the fans, you, I mean, you can imagine how excited they are, right? And and in some of the cases, what I, what I haven't like talked to the fans on the channel about, actually, I'm telling you about this, is that I will reach out to somebody and say, hey, that thing you posted on TikTok or Instagram was really cool. Would you want me to produce it? And I say that because they've used the hashtag. They've used Shinoda produce me as the hashtag we do. So they've they've raised their hand and said, I want Mike to produce me. So I, I hit them on the DMs and I say, do you want me to produce? And they always say yes. And then half the time they say, I haven't finished the song though. Like the thing I posted is it's a verse and a chorus and I don't have a second verse. I don't have a bridge or any, you know, middle eight or whatever. I don't have anything else. And so it's like, okay, well, like take your time. Don't rush it because I want you to be, I want you to submit something you love because like the whole idea is for you to get to more people than you've already got to. So give me something great. And when it's ready, then send it to me. And I, and, and that's generally it's, if it's, if it's somebody in that scenario, I find that they're get, they get back to me within like three or four days. And what do they usually get back to you with? Like a, a more expanded, same demo, but with all the parts yeah, it's usually like we a we transfer link or something like that with multi-tracked vocals. And I always tell them like, I'll tell them like speed it up like to this BPM or whatever. Or I'll tell them make sure it's in your like very best range. It sounded low to me, but up to you. And then I can let and they can go crazy on the on the the uh, overdubs and harmonies and background vocal, whatever else they want to do, they do. But they do that before the track is. Before there's a track, is that correct? Yeah, before there's a before there's a track. So what you get is basically finished vocal stems for a song. Yeah. 
And then you start from scratch. You take it as an acapella. Yeah. And you build music to support whatever that is. Yeah. Do you remember when we were doing The Thousand Suns together? Yeah. That at the end of that record, before the first single, The Catalyst was the single on that record, before the, the single came out, so no fan had heard the song, we released pieces of stems to that song. And we told them, take these pieces, make a song out of them. We didn't give them enough to know what the song even was. We just said, take pieces and make a song out of it. And whoever's thing is the coolest to us, we're gonna put you on our record, on the album itself. And we ended up putting them on, I think it was When They, uh, when they Come For Me was the song we put them on, but we chose it based on who was like, as I recall, like I could be getting some of this wrong, but as I recall, it was like, we gave them pieces to remix, but they'd never heard the song they were remixing. So yeah. I called it like the premix. Yeah. Like they just, they had to just assume the song. And that's how so I feel. Cool. I feel like there's something to that, something about that that relates to this, where it's like, I don't know what you were thinking your song is, but here's what I hear just based on that vocal on a grid. So cool. It's fun, man. Super fun. That Thousand Suns is, is my favorite of the things we worked on together. That's my favorite. Just because I feel like it really is, it felt like the beginning of something new and something new and really good. We didn't, like the, the, the record before it, Minutes to Midnight, was the, the whole effort, the whole, when our, we first met, you asked the band, what do you guys envision doing with this album? Like, why, why are we talking? Like, what do you want to do? And we all said, like, we want to we wanna redefine the identity of the band. Like, the whole point was to make something that didn't sound like the stuff that people had already heard, because albums one and two were so similar. And you were like, great, that's exactly how I feel. And he's, you said... I don't know if I would want to work with the band if you didn't feel that way. So it's great we're all on the same page and we just kind of hit it off from there. And that first record we did together was a very long, hard process, very difficult. We were like 150 demos, eight, 18 months or something. And you and I had a couple conversations towards the end of it where I was like, Rick, I can't do this anymore. It's like, we're turning it into Guns N' Roses Chinese democracy. We're just gonna be in the studio for years on this thing. So we need to put a stop to it. And I think that's because... We hadn't gotten to the place place yet where we were gonna get on the next record. And I didn't wanna like just have our heads down underground until we thought we were there. I don't think we could have gotten there on one try. It was a two record evolution. Yeah, and I think it worked out fine. And it it, it ended up being more of a, a somewhat more smoother transition for the audience as well because yeah oh god it would you imagine if they had been if, if Thousand Sons came out first, it would have just been like I mean, there would yeah. have been a lot of people who just said, fuck these guys. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. That, even as it was, that album, like, A Thousand Suns was one or five stars. Like, it was a solid yeah. two and a half star record because nobody was in the middle. Everybody yes. was on, but we love it or we hate it. Everybody. Yeah, which is, uh, which is, there is no better way to know you took it as far as it needs to go <laughs> totally. when people love it or hate totally, it and no totally. one's in the middle. That, it, it tells you everything. That's the dream is to have people love it or really hate it. Totally, totally agreed. I remember us having a lot of conversations about like music technology stuff around the time of Sonos and what, you know what I'm saying? Like you, you've always been interested in, well, I mean, you've always been interested in 
cutting edge technology. Let me ask you this. Is there, is there stuff in music technology that you're interested in right now? And then beyond that, is there stuff in technology at large that you're really interested in these days? I'm interested in how blockchain is going to affect music distribution. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to a place where if an artist makes something, they can put it out and people who want it can get to it. Even for, from the early days of hip hop, it's always been a, a struggle of people wanting to silence hip hop. I mean, the right to express your feelings. You're not saying what's, mm. no one knows what is or isn't. All you have is, all we have is our experience of the world and we share it. Mm. And as artists, that's what the game is. It's just yeah. sharing what you notice that no one else notices or that what you notice that other people notice and like, oh yeah, that mm. um, or not, or something to react to. You know, like as we talked about, I like the fact that the people who vote one star for a thousand sons get to say that. It's like, that's right. That's what, that's their opinion. They don't have to like it. That's fine. Yeah. Right. No, I love, I mean, you know this, I love polarizing music. I love stuff that like, I mean, Me one of my favorite groups ever is like, I had said this the other day, we, we did a remix. We gave a, uh, you know, a hundred Gex. Yeah. I gave, we, we did, we let 100 Gex remix One Step Closer. And so obviously the fans were like, wait, that's what they look like? Wait, that's what it sounds like? Like, bleh, like they could, they hate, like so many people were hated it so much. And then other people were like, this is their favorite thing. I, I posted about it because I was seeing all that. I was like, you guys know, like ever since from, from Public Enemy to Death Grips, like I love stuff that, I love that dissonance. I love that like visceral. It takes, it's hard to like get that like in tune with almost like your intuition to like make those weird sonic experiments to make something sound that way. Like you don't get, you don't arrive at um, 100 Gex or like, by the way, or like Umru or like Sophie. You don't arrive at that just in a day, like screwing around and mistakenly like making it like there, there's so much work and experimentation and like self reflection in a sense that, that is required to find that that sonic like identity. I love that work. Absolutely. Me too. I can remember the first time I heard Sophie and how my mind was blown just yeah. like, you know, like the lemonade song destroyed me. Destroy was so cool. Yeah. It was so original and so cool. Can't believe Sophie passed away. Cannot believe it. Yeah, it's crazy. We'll be back with Mike Shinoda and Rick Rubin after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire 
with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious. But the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. And market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. We're back with more from Mike Shinoda and Rick Rubin. What's your first memory of, of music in your life? I remember listening to my parents' records. They had like a, um, what my dad would call a hi-fi system. And he'd, he'd play vinyl. And I remember their music, like they didn't listen to stuff that was very exciting to me. They listened to a lot of like slower 70s like almost sounded like ballads and love songs. It was like this whole soft rock period. And then honestly, like the first record that I was like, what is that was Beastie Boys License to Ill. Wow. That was the first time. Yeah. That, I mean, music is, was happening, was happening all over the place. But, but the first record that I was obsessed with was, was License to Ill. And that opened the door for, because it's funny, it, it's weird to think that like, at the time I wouldn't have known that, that hip hop was 
that these guys were underdogs, that the style of music was being what you'd call it today, you'd call it a meme. Like there, it was being, it was being minimized as like not real music. It's yes. just a bunch of, and part of that, there was a racism involved with that too. It's like, oh, it's just these black guys talking over other people's beats, other people's songs. So like, it's not music, right? But to me, I was like, these are the first songs that I've ever felt like that's, that's what I listened to. And I memorized every word. I knew every, then I was buying LL Cool J and I was buying Run DMC. I eventually like Ice-T and stuff that my parents didn't know what I was listening to had a lot more profanity and whatever. My mom, I tried to get uh, the first, the debut Cypress Hill record for Christmas. And my mom, like Christmas day came and went and I didn't get it. And I was like, that was like the number one thing on my, I had more expensive things on my list, but the number one thing was this, the Cypress Hill CD. My mom is like, are you kidding? She's like, I realize that's what you wanted, but like, do you see the names of the songs? How I could just kill a man and pigs and hole in the head. She's like, I'm not buying you any album with that. You cannot listen. I had that album the next day, I think. I, I went, I found a way to get it. Like as soon as I knew that she's like, I'm not buying it for you. I was like, well, I got to get this record. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah, totally. it's right, like, right. Because we didn't believe that, it, like nobody, any any person who's ever been on that side of the equation knows like listening to this stuff is like, I'm not going to go and like do anything. I'm not going to go shoot cops because I listen to Cypress Hill. That's stupid, obviously. Yes. It was funny. Like I thought, I thought they were hysterical. And by the way, all of those things, like there was something I related to in terms of like, this feeling of like being an outsider. And I think it was, a, I think it had to do a little bit with being mixed race. And like, people would think I, people, nobody ever knew what I was. I was just like, oh, they talk, they speak to me in Spanish. I was like, I'm not, I'm not Mexican. Like, So if your entry into your love of music is hip hop, did you start with the idea of, of making music? Did it start with the idea of being a writer and writing, being an MC or, did you think about making beats? Where were you in, on the scale? My mom made me do piano. So I was doing, I was listening to rap and I was playing classical piano. And I, hate, I didn't really care. I didn't hate classical, but I didn't care for it. I was just mm -hmm. doing it because it was a class that my mom was making me take. I think an important moment was around, um, I must've been in junior high. I'm gonna say, I don't know like 12-ish, 13-ish. My piano teacher had a, a songwriting contest with a, another teacher or a couple teachers. So there's a recital. And before the recital, everybody submitted their, their songs on paper. And you play, everybody played their song too in the concert. And then, and then afterwards, you went down a hallway and they put like ribbons on the songs that won. And I won first place. And I won... It, and, and there were kids who were, they were like high school kids who had submitted songs and I was, I beat them. And that was the first moment where I was like, oh, that's so crazy. I beat that. Like I, I wrote a better song than those guys. And I was like looking at their, thinking about what they played and looking at theirs and like figuring out like why. I don't know why. Do you remember the piece of music? Uh, I can still play it. Yeah. It's basically a, a 13 year old's version of like, a Dungeons and Dragons theme. Like imagine the most simple medieval, like fifths and A minor. And that's, it's that, like, that's all it is. It sounds like the Hobbit. Like, so that, and I don't know, I guess that's what I was into since I was also drawing all the time. I drew a lot of that type of thing. So those things all converged. So eventually, shortly after that, I know I went, I went to my piano teacher and I was like, I want to get more into like 
writing music. I love it. And I want to write stuff like my favorite rap songs. So like, can we do more blues and jazz? And she was like, well, number one, like I'm not your best resource for that kind of kind of music, partially because jazz in particular is so specific and it's not something she studied or really. And, and there was an improvisation element to it too. So she's like, this is this goes outside of the academic training that I'm prepared to teach you. The other thing is you what you're talking about, she said to me, well, the other thing you're talking about is making and recording things. And that's not what I do. So she basically talked me into quitting her lessons. She said, you should go buy a keyboard and buy these types of pieces of, of equipment to learn and you'll learn hands-on how to use it. And if you can imagine, I, I always say like to people, imagine somebody who makes their living teaching students piano and is telling their student to quit piano because it's the right thing. Like there's a no more admirable. That's amazing. I always thought. It's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. So you're, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. Super lucky. Super lucky. Big lesson too. Yeah. What was the recommended equipment then? Like, what did you start with? Well, I got, she said to get a keyboard that had other sounds so I could start playing different sounds with the same notes that I already knew, which I did. And then after that, I think it was um, like an SM57 mic, a Tascam 4-track. And then my big purchases were, I got a, a little Mackie mixing console and a an Akai S900 sampler. And that needed to be to be programmed with something else. So like you needed to send MIDI to it. It didn't have an internal sequencer. So I bought um, this Alesis, I think it's they're called, I think it's an HR16 drum machine. And I could use the HR16 as a drum machine, or I could shut the volume off and run the sampler off of it. And then I was then I was off to the races. That's how my band started. Is once I got those pieces of gear, I was making beats. My friend was coming over with his guitar. And we were making like, we started by making joke tracks. Like we were making, almost like think of like Weird Al Yankovic. Like we had this thing, this thing that was like, like G-Funk, Snoop Dogg style G-Funk gangster rap. His group or peripheral group was the Dog Pound. So ours was the Pooch Pound. And we had this, we had this song <laughs> where we were North Coast killers. So we hated Canadians. So <laughs> stupid. My friends, it was only to make our friends laugh and to get, and meanwhile, like, yeah learn how to use the gear. Like I was, the more songs I made, as stupid as they were, they made my friends laugh and I was learning how to put a song together. Well, that, that was how the, beast, the, the album that influenced you was made as well. It was like, it was just, everything was written with the idea of making our friends laugh and that's all. Yeah. There was n never thought past that. Yeah. Do you think that the fact that you started learning piano before uh, getting into the production aspect of recording turned out to be a good thing for you? I do. I mean, for me, that was like, those are your fundamentals. Those are your building blocks. Like, I, I don't know if I, I don't know what I would have done. I don't know if I would have had the tools to like get excited Yeah. if I didn't have that, right? Like if it was just about plugging things in and making noises, some people are very excited about just making noises and they don't have to be musical. But for me, there was always like, hip hop was based on hooky moments, whether that's like finding the best loop off of an obscure record and turning that into a song or like creating your own, that has always been something I've been drawn to. Like everything is just like, like it's like Lego bricks of the most catchy little bits. And then you assemble them into either something that's kind of linear and doesn't change a lot or something that changes a lot. And it's more, I think of it as more of like a, 
an arranged like pop song. And then how has your relationship to the technology and the technology changed from then? So we know what you started with. How, how is that different than what you use now, let's say? So in the beginning of Linkin Park's career, it was very much of like a hip hop. You remember, you probably remember this very much of a hip hop approach where it was like track first and vocals on the track. And then when we met you, you said, okay, well, I remember this one conversation you and I had where you're like, well, have you got, have you ever, you know, you're, since I was like the primary writer, you were like, have you ever done a song demo starting with just vocals and an instrument? Like you, you know, piano and vocals would seem obvious. And I was like, usually not, but like, there've been a couple cases. You're like, which ones? And I'm like, well, in the end and breaking the habit, like big, so our biggest songs were the, the ones that started that way. And you like looked at me like this. I was like, I know, Rick, like, I know I, it's not that I, it's not that I don't recognize it. It's that it's hard for me to do for some reason. I don't want to I sit down to do it. And then I don't want to do it. And it was just because it was so comfortable doing it the other way. I think. Yeah. That's really funny. Not that we didn't have good results doing it the other way too. We did. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And then eventually, so I think that the next step in the evolution was learning how to like identify parts in a more abstract way. Like I don't need to have the full backdrop of a fully produced track to get me excited to make words and melodies or to make rap lyrics or whatever. I can make a great rap song off a click track and that's happened. So, and that in terms of technology, I remember when we had to have like, you know, like a, a, a computer rig the size of a refrigerator to make a song. Now I can do it on my phone. I had a, a nice, a couple nice sessions with Tom Morello a few years ago. And we didn't come up with much, but it was just nice to like get together and hang out and pick his brain and whatever. Um, but I love Tom and he's incredible. And one of the things that he's all about is like, he's got his pedal board, he's got his guitar, like it's punk rock. It's like not a lot of stuff doesn't want to, he doesn't even want the newer version of his wah pedal. Like he just wants the old one. And that got me thinking like, yeah, you know what? Like I've got a lot of plugins, got so many of them. And once you know how they work, like you can download a brand new plugin and already know how it works. But my tried and true stuff, like there's some, there's some stuff that I know that I've used for years that like just works really well. And it's kind of signature stuff. And I just know how to manipulate it to find a new thing too. It doesn't have to be the same sound every time. I just know how to get in there by plugging in this sampler to that guitar pedal, to that speaker and it's, and miking it with this mic and it sounds great. When did you start with guitar? When I had to, <laughs> when it was like, it was like my friends, I used to play casually with my friend who was like, he was taking guitar lessons. He was way into Zeppelin. He would teach me a couple of the like riffs and stuff. But I started really getting into it as the band was starting to take off just because we needed a second guitar player and I and the riffs weren't hard to play. I don't think I ever asked you, how did, the, how did Linkin Park start? It was really just me and my, like, remember I told you about the joke songs? Mm -hmm. uh, my friend Mark and I were, were doing that. We, we made four real songs. And um, sent those to this guy who's like, it was, he was an A&R guy. He put the record label's address on the back of the CDs, it was Immortal Records, and they had Corn and Incubus. And so, and the, the, the mailing address was on the back. So we just sent it there and was just like, whatever. And then he called us and we were like, holy shit, we have to go in. Now we have to go see this guy. And um, he was so flabbergasted that we made the music that we were making 
on that cassette four track and sample that thing I described, he was, he was like, okay, so how many people are in the band? We were like two. He's like, who plays all the, who plays the drums? I was like, it's, are all samples and then drum machines. And he's like, well, I, I hear like multiple guitars and bass. And I was like, yeah, we switch off on that stuff. And he's like, do you, have you ever played live? We're like, no. Like, <laughs> have you ever been in a real studio? No. He's like, okay, you, so you need to do everything. Like, please get a band together. Please play shows. Please get into a real studio and record. And when you do some of those things, come back and play me what you're doing. Like, I think what you're doing is great. You guys are just, you have a really like long way to go before you're doing, you can, you're going to experience so many things. I can't wait to hear how good it is once you get to that point. And his story is that we never came back I obviously know that we did. We did send him more demos and he was not interested. We would have we would have killed to get on there to be signed by that label. And I'm positive we sent them demos. But yeah, it, it ended up being that Mark was um I've known, I've been like super, super close friends with Mark since we were since around that age, since 12. And we had to part ways because he was gonna give himself an ulcer being in the band. Like he couldn't get up on stage in front of people, he had panic attacks. He was just freaking out all, whenever. He was the kind of guy that like we would show up for our sound check and he'd lash out at the monitor engineer like five minutes into the being at the club. And the monitor engineer would just be like, fuck these kids. And he'd screw us the whole night. Mike's would be feeding back everywhere because he was just, he literally just like set the faders up and went to the bathroom. And part of that was like, okay, Mark, like, can you please not scream at the guy who's in charge of us not sounding like crap and having a fun night? But he was just so panicked about the whole thing all the time. And so like he, at the end of the day, he knew that it was just not a good fit for him. He loved music. He loved, he actually loved more of it than just being on stage part. And he, and he ended up being, he manages, helps manage, you know, Mark Wakefield's manages oh, cool. system, great system of a down, Allison Chains, Deftones, like so many great bands. So he's doing you know, great. Amazing. So he, he found what was right for his life. It's like so funny how we, the path becomes clear. Yeah, you know exactly. Who was the first of the members we know of the classic assemblage of Lincoln Park? Yeah. Who was the first member after you? Brad. Brad. And how, do you, how did you know Brad? So Brad was Mark's next door neighbor. It was like a TV show. Like you could look out Mark's bedroom window on the second story and throw a pebble and hit Brad's window and Brad would open it. And he'd be in there with like his slightly long hair and his like Ibanez or whatever it was practicing Metallica. And I didn't know Brad very well in high school. Like we knew, we knew of each other and Mark was his next door neighbor and whatever, but Brad hung with different people. Remember like hip hop kids and metal kids didn't like co-mingle. Yeah. Mark was in a band with Brad before he was with me he was a little more of a rock kid than me. Like he would, he played me Rage Against the Machine for the first time. He played me Chili Peppers for the first time. He played, anything that had a rap like element to it. We, are, we saw our, both of our first show together was P.E., Anthrax, Primus, and Young Black Teenagers. And we saw in the crowd before the show started, we saw Ice-T in the crowd and ran over and got his autograph before anybody else like bothered him. So cool. What an incredible, I mean, it's almost like a joke that that was my first concert because that's like what I ended up doing. So cool. So, but yeah, Brett, Mark and I, like they had already been in bands together and then I, I kind of 
started writing stuff with Mark on the side just because we were such close friends. And they had this they had this awesome like like rap metal band called the Pricks, which is such a punk rock name. I love that name. And when did Joe and Dave? Yeah, Brad was at UCLA with Dave. I was at Art Center with Joe. Rob was from a neighboring high school, and then eventually we found Chester through. We we had gotten an, like a an attorney that was interested in us and a publisher who was interested in us, and they found this kid from Arizona named Chester who we should check out. Like we were trying out a bunch of people. We tried out like, I don't know how many people. Tried out a bunch of people and it was pretty obvious to us, as you can imagine. Yeah. Once the group got together, even even before you found Chester, once you started making music together as a group, was the direction of the sound very clear right from the beginning? Yeah. I mean, it was it was clear to the extent that like, so even right now, was it last year we released um, this hybrid theory box set, which I was, when it first started, the idea of putting out a box set of our oldest demos and whatever was like, I was like, that just sounds like you're cashing in on whatever, on, on like, you know, we're not doing other things as a band. So like, you're going to release this thing. Like, I'm not into it, but you're welcome to like, prove me wrong. I just, I don't, at face value, I don't know why we would do that. And management started to come back with some ideas about what it could be. And they, I had already, they had, I had already sent them some demos of things um, from back then for our fan club that we didn't use. And they were like, well, you've got all these things and we know you've got more. And other people have found demos and we found all this material. They ended up finding like a whole hard drive full of video from that time. So this conversation, like it's all documented on this Hybrid Theory 20th edition thing that we put out last year. If you want, want to hear those early demos right after we stopped making joke songs and when you want to hear our first three demos with Mark, that's on Spotify right now. Wow, so cool. And and I couldn't believe we found all that stuff. So all this stuff is like top, kind of top of mind because we just went through all of that. And um, it was there. Like you can hear my favorite, th- one of my favorite tracks is a track called She Couldn't, which there's not a single distorted guitar in it. It's a it's a hip hop beat with some really weird like weird organic like vocally sounding samples and like it's done on my old Akai S nine hundred which is like a twelve bit like boom bap sampler um, and it has a, a clean guitar with delay on it and Chester singing the entire time and we wouldn't one of the lines is you are not alone in that song and I'm like that everything in that song is is stuff that we were still. That was the identity of the band until like five, six years later. Like it was still, we were still exploring that identity and catching up with ourselves in a sense. Like amazing. It was all baked in from the very beginning. It was all there. It was just really messy. It's amazing too. And it wasn't, it wasn't conceptual. It was just you guys making the music you like. Yeah. And exploring different like facets of the architecture that already existed between us. Cause we weren't naturally all super good friends. We just had similar, like once we got interested in a thing creatively or something we would make or something we would hear or something we would see, then we geek out together. And that's again, it's those things like, oh man, isn't that cool? Yeah, it's so cool. Have you seen this? And we'd go down these weird rabbit holes together. Cause it, cause at face value, like when Chester first auditioned for the band and we, and when, then we talked and then we talked after the audition a little more, my, 
the reserva- my recollection is that the reservations that came up weren't about his singing, obviously. Everyone was like, he's the best singer. He's better than anyone we are hearing on the radio. Like, he's the best singer. But his person, like, but what kind of person is he? Like, we know, we got the sense of like, I think he's like kind of into drugs and like, we got Rob's in the band. Rob's straight edge. Like, Rob was in the program. He's a, he's an AA for who knows how long at that point. And that might be a rub. Like, I don't know. And so we really had to get to know him as a person before we could commit. And, and that was the part was like, okay, yeah, like we're really different, but we're definitely cool. Like we're definitely, we, we like each other. And it's, it's like, we're going to disagree on some things as any band will, especially with six people in it. But I think we're fine. Sometimes the, the fact that ha- having outliers working together leads to something that could never happen without those different opposing energies coming together. It creates something much more intense and much bigger. Mm. So I'm glad that you chose to go out of your, in a way, go out of your comfort zone to allow that to happen. It's like, well, he's not one of us, but we can do this together. Yeah. Well, I think what we realized is there wasn't, there wasn't a united us there wasn't like us and us and him. It was like Joe and Brad, for example, like Joe's favorite kind of stuff. Did you ever hear a group called Latyrix? There's a rap group called the Latyrix and one of their songs, they both rapped at the same time and panned their vocals left and right. So they were just, it was a beat going and two guys rapping different verses at once. And you go in and you listen to kind of one guy and you listen to the other, but it wasn't, it wasn't a type of thing you'd want to just put on and listen to. And Joe loved that kind of thing. That was like one of, in that time, that was his, one of his favorite records. Brad was meanwhile listening to Britney Spears. Like, right? So like we had to remind ourselves in the conversation, it's like all of us, our, our you know, similarities or whatever, like we overlap on certain things, but we, we definitely are polar opposites in a lot of different ways. Like we, we definitely rub this there's friction in a bunch of other ways so this this other guy who we didn't know very well at the time like what's the difference between brad and joe and like brad and chester like we'll have to find out yeah we'll be right back with more from mike shinoda snag a job is where america goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out 
how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism, and we fold. But the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point, and market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off. But also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the Outlaw Country Music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Rick's conversation with Mike Shinoda. You've played all over the world and a lot of shows from very big shows to small shows over the course of your career. Tell me what you've learned from playing live that you've that you bring with you into the music making process? Mm. Sometimes I beat myself up a little bit for not slowing down and like thinking more deeply about like some of the bigger picture, why and what, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Cause I know that would be, and part of me says like, that's the right thing to do to like, think about the kinds of questions you just asked. Then the other part of me is like really loves 
like letting intuition drive the the ship and just going with it. Because I feel like it's not just the creative flow, but there's also like a flow to things. Chester and I used to always talk about like riding the wave. And sometimes you just notice like, well, this came up in conversation yesterday randomly. I don't know why that came up in conversation. And then I got, I saw it on Twitter yesterday or Instagram. And then, and now we're talking about in the studio and that, isn't it weird that that's come up three times in two days? And you just start to pay attention to like little things like that. It's like, okay, well, that feels like a pattern. It's just a, like in the ether. Let's write a song about that. Why not? I don't know what that is. I mean, it's stupid, but it's worth, it seems like a thing. With that said, I feel like the, the, sh- the show thing, I did, by the way, I didn't just say that just to buy myself time to think about the answer to the question. No, 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 that was great. <laughs> I, I, by the way, that was a great answer. <laughs> I feel like that's a thing that for me, like doing the things that I do, I probably learn things from them consciously. I, I probably learn things from them subconsciously um, that I don't know that I know. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> because at the end of the day, when I'm making making a song, I know it's come up like, just like any artist, when you've toured a bunch, you go, oh, that's not gonna be very fun to play live. It's not a question. It's like, I, it's not like I wonder if it is. It's like, no, if it definitively is not. Like, so I have to now make a decision mm-hmm. as I'm writing it. Like, is it a thing that I record or I write right now? Cause I'm gonna have to live with it later. I think maybe the reason I asked it is of all the artists I've worked with, you were the first band who didn't do the process like a band. So it struck me as here are a group of people who all are essentially producers Mm. and they would create something and share the files and pass around the files to create it. And then at the end of the day, make the most interesting music virtually. The whole process was virtual. And then when it would come time to tour, you'd figure out, okay, who's going to play what? How's this going to work? How, what would the band version be like? Because it was That's never right. made like a band version in the recording. I was shocked when I found out just like how some people would like write a thing in person or jam a thing out until they got the pieces. Like we were talking about Tom earlier, like when they were doing that first Rage record, they like just went in and jammed stuff and then Zach and the producer would like assemble it and then he'd like rap over it. I thought that was crazy. Like to just jam for a couple weeks and walk away and then come back a month or two later and have a record. That's super weird to me. Cause you're leaving all of your, you're leaving like all of the, like, what about all the development time in my head? I'm thinking like, I could have, if I had a good bit, a piece in the jam that I then took home and I really thought about and said, this riff caught my ear. What elements are, of it are cool? What if I change the drum sound? What if I change the tempo? What if I change, instead of it being four bars, what if it's two? What if it's eight? What if it's, instead of being that guitar, it's a, it's a keyboard? You have a whole universe of ways to change it. And I think that's where the like, producer slash hip hop producer comes in, right? I love that process of experimentation. By the way, the Twitch, coming back to the Twitch thing, one thing that's awesome about doing that same process that I'm talking about in, on Twitch, I just had two thoughts. The Twitch thing, I can get immediate feedback from the fans. You know, when you're playing a thing on stage, like people used to do this, people in the 70s. They'd write a song, play it, and then they'd 
get audience feedback and then they change it and then go on the next show and play it again. Oh, tonight it was got it got better feedback. The fans really loved this part or the fans really reacted when we did this. So then they kept that and they changed other things. They kept doing it. They kept doing this trial and error with these test groups of people who were in the club listening to them. And eventually the song got good and they recorded it. They went into the studio and they played the exact same thing that they've worked up however many times and that was the track. Twitch, I'm on the channel. I'm recording, I'm writing and recording in real time, very fast. And at every moment where I go, what's better, this or that? I literally just ask the chat. I can literally put a poll up. There's sometimes people in the chat who are louder than others. Other people don't want to talk. I can put a poll up and get an, and know exactly how popular a choice is. The other day I had a song that was like, a, it, it, it was, I had vocals and I had like drums and I was like, should I go keyboard, like a, like a low uh, whole note keyboard thing? Or should I do this like more funky bass line with a live bass? So I did both and I asked the chat, which one's better? And they, and in my mind, they were both equally good. In their minds, 80% to the live bass. So cool. So that's taking everything we just talked about and wrapping it up into one moment in four minutes, right? I'm jamming in real time. Like an idea pops in my head, my fingers go to whatever frets, like my fingers go to whatever keys, maybe some accidentally. Like that's what's recorded. I've just now made a thing. And then they can give me their feedback in real time and I can know, oh, the audience actually prefers this thing. And now I'm, it's, it's done. I'm already, it's not only is it written, it's recorded and I just move on. So cool. There was also yeah. an aspect of an artist playing playing live in a club and getting the feedback that wasn't only based on the feedback coming back from the audience, but how the artist's relationship to the music changed when they're playing it in front of people, which it does change. Like when you play a song for the first time in front of people, you might realize, oh, this uh, this solo section is twice as long as it as it wants to be, or the opposite. This. It wants to go longer at the end. You know, it wants to have this. Th like right. you feel the energy of the music in a different way when even just people are listening, not based on their reaction. Yeah. I, I also realize if you're playing the same song for 20 years, sometimes you play with those things just like you just, it, 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 those, those realities change. Like, We've played this song. And back when we first started playing this song, they re the fans wanted to hear the album version and so did we. If we changed it, it was less. It, was, it made it uh, worse, right? And then at a certain point, once everyone has heard it that way, then not only did we want to hear it a different way, like they wanted to hear it a different way. So all of a sudden then it was like, well, let's take a song that's two minutes and 45 seconds and expand it to four minutes by like, doing a brand new thing in the bridge for, for like two minutes. Yeah. Just cause like, cause now that's fresh. Now that's, you've heard the thing and now we can play with the expectation. Absolutely. And there might even be a time in the future again, we want to go back to the album version and it'll feel new again. And then it feels new again. Yeah. So the last three projects you've put out were instrumental only. Oh yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, I know I consider those like mixtapes or something. Okay, but did they, tell me, how did that happen? Those were the things I was making on Twitch. So I was just making like all, like for nine months last year, I was just making instrumentals. So I generated over a hundred songs. I made a ton of songs. And um, some of them got released 
I put some of them together in this this like trilogy called Dropped Frames, which is a reference to like basically having bad internet and not being able to stream properly, which is, was the case in when I was first streaming. And um, I put some of those out, and and like part of me was like, I know that those types of releases are small; they're not for everybody. I also love. I've always loved like Dilla and DJ Shadow and like so many Flying Lotus, like so many producers who, when you listen to their tracks, it's almost like they can hold my attention with no vocal. Yeah, you know, because it's it's just they're creative enough without it, and and so I I felt like encouraged in a way by listening to some of that stuff to be like, oh, it was you know, it's with COVID and everything, like. I feel like actually it wasn't just COVID. It was it was like with Trump and COVID and all of the noise on social media. I felt like everyone was always screaming, so it was nice to listen to music with no words. There's a break. Yeah, really cool. And it's funny when I would listen to them, I would hear like baby Lincoln Park songs. You know, like often, like I could hear it's like, oh, if if this was going to be a Lincoln Park song, I know where this would go. Like. Yeah it wouldn't be so different than the seed ideas that would start, that would often start songs. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, it's, I think that's the, for people that make music or aspire to make music, they love, uh, there's a lot of folks in my, who watch that channel, my channel, who are in that category. A track like that, you know, 10 years ago, that would be like two days of work. And these days it's like 90 minutes of work. Incredible. Right, I just get there, I get there very fast now. And it's because of the repetition. Um, and I'm not saying yeah. it's like, like my, my worry, actually sometimes I worry because there are some little, I don't expect everything to be great. I don't expect everything to even be good. But I do know, I do guess that just because of the the volume that there's actually gems in there. And it's For like, sure. am I throwing away these gems? Like one of these little pieces of a thing could actually be like a very like big song. Yes. Is it worth it to like just throw them out there on Twitch and do it in live and then maybe not even release it? Like, is that is that a dumb thing to be doing? And at the end of the day, I feel like that's where modern culture is. Like that, to me, that's, that's right on the edge of like where we're at in terms of like, like entertainment and music. Like music is not, music, music doesn't mean what it used to mean back in the day. And I don't mean that in terms of value. I just mean that in terms of identity. It doesn't, yeah. it does to a 13 year old, a song generally is just like a little piece of background thing that you associate with a moment. And that moment is short. Once in a while, it kind of goes back to that. You remember that long tail, the book, the long tail. It's kind of like that. Like once in a while, something will go up the rise up to the to the front of that long tail and become. I mean, we're looking at it with right right now. There's a song. That song is it. Driver's license. I'm, I'm, am I going to screw up the name? Huge song, number one on the, at least the U.S. charts for three weeks. And the first time I heard it, I had listened to it twice. I was like, "What the fuck did I just listen to? That's incredible. I love this." And it takes that. It's almost like it, yeah, it takes that level of a song. That how it's got to be that special. And everything else is just way lower on the, on the long tail. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like that too with, um, you know, when you put out hybrid theory, you probably put out, how many singles did it have? Do you remember? Oh God. Five. 
Yeah. Arguably five. Chester would say six. Five or six. And that was over a two-year period till the next album, would you say? More? Three? Something like that. Yeah, like 18, 18 plus. Over 18 yeah. months. And in today's world, nothing exists like that. There's no such thing. Whatever, whatever the biggest record in the world is comes and the super fans of that record a month later are probably over it whatever it is it's just like the rhythm the rhythm has changed yeah they burn really really bright and really fast yes and that being said you could put out something on twitch that's uh, that that in its use feels disposable but you did write it and it does exist and you could take one of those and turn it into a giant song at some point if you wanted to. It's like the, the beauty is now it's like they're not gone. Yeah, I think the reason, one of the, one of the reasons I, I switched to the idea of, of working these songs off of, like to include the fan vocalists and the, and the aspiring vocalists is because all of them I mean, they literally have a thousand followers on their biggest social platform, right? Most of them are, are very comparatively very small. And so doing it this way, then I get to deal in volume. I can finish five songs in two weeks, yes. give those to the artists. That's their, that's their best ticket so far of having a shot to get on playlists and get in front of more fans. And they're going to work really hard to get there with it. It has my name attached, so that's, that helps them right? Hopefully. <laughs> With some people, it helps them. With other people, it hurts them. <laughs> Hopefully, it helps. Yes. And then... Your intentions are good. <laughs> and, I, and I get to explore every genre I feel like exploring, every type of song. Today is, today is a rap song. Tomorrow's a metal song. The next day, we're doing a female vocalist. No drums. Like, it's... Every day, it can be something completely different. Super fun. Great experience. It's fun. Cool. I love seeing you. I miss you. You too, man. All right, Rick. Thanks, man. Great to talk to you. Thanks to Mike Shinoda for taking time away from making beats to talk to Rick. To hear a playlist of our favorite Mike Shinoda and Linkin Park songs, check out a playlist we created at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at brokenrecord, Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. I think music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora. 
to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 